Hello, welcome back to this, our ninth episode uh, from the Sabbath School from Home podcast uh, for this season. Uh, we're going to take a slight diversion uh, today uh, into some interesting territory. Uh, super glad to be here. My name's Cameron. And I'm Luke. Uh, Lachlan is not with us yet. He's been uh, had a last minute thing turn up um, that has meant he'll be joining us later in the recording. And uh, Ken, I believe, has visitors at his house this weekend. So uh, he's enjoying socialising with friends and, and uh, we're very glad for him for that, though, of course, we miss his contributions. And uh, Ken's missed a few lately, Luke. So we're, you know, we're going to have to do an episode where Ken does a lot of talking. Yes, I think we must. My suspicion, Cam, is that his plane is getting... It is. It is. We haven't seen very much of him lately. Yeah, well, he's, he's not building planes on Friday night, but he is getting a lot of progress done on it during the week. And um, that's super exciting. I, I wasn't suggesting he was doing it now. I was suggesting he was, he was resting from his labours. Yeah, yeah, as, as indeed we are encouraged to do. Um, and when it's finished, Luke, he will step back, I think, with a very similar feeling to the one God felt post-creation. And he will look at the aeroplane and he will say it is very good. Mm. Well, we are created in his image. And that includes the desire to create. So yeah. I'm, I'm pleased for Ken that it's... it's it's making good progress at this point. Yeah. Now, at the end of last podcast, we took a slight issue with a statement from the lesson, which <laughs> ran along the lines, something along the lines of, um, you know, the only thing more important than Sabbath keeping is God himself. And and we suggested at that time that uh, we agreed that God was more important, but the the sort of orders of magnitude of importance were so different um, that it was hard to see where the comparison added useful information. Um, it, it was it was a fairly um, well as I remember it, which the, the recording of it, which we did. It was a frustrating topic to discuss, and generally mm. speaking, when we do these podcasts, it's not a frustrating experience at all. Yeah, um, because of the company and the discussion and all the rest of it. But but this this particular lesson. And I think we said something along the lines of we have no animosity towards the author of the lesson. Um, yeah. it's, it's not out of any sort of hatred. But this particular lesson said so many things that were so difficult to understand and not in the sense of they were complicated ideas, was yeah. they didn't make sense. Well, there, there were straw men presented that didn't seem to be on closer examination straw and, men um, and were a little yes. harder to knock down as a consequence. The... <clears throat> the problem is, like having established that really the most important thing is God, um, it it seemed to me on retrospect that that was actually a pretty good summary thought for the lesson. And and yes. if you if you look at the book of Revelation in that context, if you say, all right, um, <clears throat> you're doing things that are pretty tough at the moment. You're under persecution. Um, in the life, we are swamped and you know bombarded with our appetites, our desires, our fears. Um, the immediacy of our experience is overwhelming and um, it is not easy to see that our choices and our actions have a cosmic significance. Um, but the most important thing is, uh, you know, who God is and what he's done for us. I think your comment last week that it's not just that he made the world a long time ago, it's that God's still doing stuff. He's, um, you know, there's the story of salvation playing out, um, hopefully in us. Uh, <clears throat> that it, That is really the most important. It's not the most, it's like... um. It's like in a Yes Minister episode. In It's not in the, the TV series. It's in the book that was written by the same people who wrote the TV series. Um, uh, but in the book, there's lots of footnotes added in. Um, and uh, at one point, Hacker is working away on some legislation as a minister and Bernard turns up with the office Christmas cards that need signing. And Hacker says, oh, you know, must we, must we really do this, Bernard? What I'm doing is much more important. And Bernard says, yes. But these Christmas cards are more urgent, Minister. And so he drops what's important and starts doing what's urgent. And um, maybe one of the lessons of Revelation is that pay attention to things that are important, not necessarily just those things that seem urgent to us. Um, <clears throat> you know, having arrived at the conclusion that the, the most important thing is is God Himself. Uh, you know, where can we go to top that? Um, compounded by the fact that this week's lesson is on uh, Babylon and. Uh, I don't find a lot of nourishment myself in a sort of a fixation is probably too strong a word, but a fixation 
that the church has on on pinning down exactly who Babylon is. Uh, so I'm reluctant to dive into that discussion, Luke. I propose instead, at the start of the lesson, we, we suggested we might look at some of the other angels' messages in the Bible. And um, angels are referred to in the book of Daniel. Uh, they're referred to in the visions, where he sees someone like the Son of Man and um, et cetera, et cetera. But they, they are mentioned also in the first chapters of, of Daniel, where there are the stories. So I thought we'd look at those two stories, uh, if you think. Uh, I, I think it's an excellent idea. I, I, what I was getting at with my previous comments was to say that we, we do this podcast um, largely for our own um, nourishment and, yeah. and, and relaxation. And if it becomes a stressful and frustrating experience on a consistent basis, it, it, that, that purpose is, is ruined. So if we step away from the lesson... Um, then yes, our listeners will just have to be uh, gracious. Yeah, our, our listener us. can can feel free to consider us as as weak and uh, yeah, in, incapable of, of of dealing with the <laughs> Sabbath school yeah. lesson that's written, and that's why we're going off to talk about other topics. Um, yeah. And I'm perfectly happy to be considered in that. <clears throat> but in the meantime, yes. we will do it, um, and we will we will yeah. find um, what lessons we can learn elsewhere. Exactly. And the honest truth is, I said this to my wife this week, and it came out of my mouth, and then I thought about it afterwards. I thought, maybe it's more profound than I than I thought. Uh, but I, my comment to her was that this week's um, lesson makes me less sure that God is real. Which you have to imagine is not the intended goal of the, of the authors. Yeah. Just such a deep rabbit hole um, when there seems to be so many other issues in the world that, are of moral significance. Um, anyway, <clears throat> let's jump to Daniel 3. And um, hmm. Oh, we're going to the Daniel 3 one. I thought Excellent. we'd go to the Daniel 3 one first, uh, yes. because it is first. That is hard to argue with. Yeah. I'll start reading from Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. His height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plains of Jura in the province of Babylon. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar sent uh, to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counsellors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Uh, Luke, do you know what a satrap is? Uh, yeah, it's it's a regional governor. So right. it's it's sort of like um, they, they had a lot of the powers that a, a king would have, but they were very much under the emperor and part of the... Okay. Administration. So there's a, a provincial ruler. Good, good. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the councillors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. You know, it's interesting, Luke, noticing what's being repeated in the story. Every time the statue yeah. is there, the explanatory sort of um, clause is thrown on the end. Oh, it's the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. Yes, that is interesting. They're very much emphasising the king's central agency in this. Yes. Well, it's interesting because I don't imagine that King Nebuchadnezzar physically put it up there himself. <laughs> I'd say there's quite a lot of worksmen, work, work, workers and craftsmen and, and other yeah. people did a lot of the heavy lifting. Um, but he commanded it. When when they embarked on the project, he yeah. posed for a photo with the shovel in his hand, yeah, telling he, the first... He, 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 they, yeah, they had a, a foundation stone. They had a, a breaking ground ceremony. Yeah. Um, uh, cool. And whenever whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Uh, therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Um, do we want to read all of this, or do we want to? Oh, we can add stop it a bit to to the angel part of the story because I, 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 I suspect. <coughs> listener will be familiar with yeah a, a lot of this narrative 
I'd, I'd like to at least read the part where they answer the king. Yes. All right. Well, I will read that to you. Um, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship, they're a bit pedantic, these guys. Um, yes. Repeating it word for word. Now, whoever yep. does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you're ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? This, Shadrach, um, Meshach... Uh, yes. Sorry, Luke, I'm going to interrupt you there. Um, <clears throat> the original command um back in verse uh five four and five um was that if they no one bowed down they'd be thrown in immediately to the first so the king is yes, not in and fact he, the king has already bent the rules for these guys well we give to... nebuchadnezzar a bad rap but it specifically yes. mentions that he was outraged and yes. he has every excuse for just throwing them into the furnace but he still gives them a second chance hmm. now you know he's we don't we don't believe him to be in the right on this particular topic, obviously. But as you said, he gets a bit of a bad rap. And, you know, for an all-powerful monarch of an ancient civilization, he's being remarkably patient <clears throat> here. Yeah. Um and and restrained. And what what is so, also fascinating about the story is he poses this question here, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Hmm. And it would be very easy to suppose that that's a, a simply, and probably when he first spoke it, it was meant as just a rhetorical question. But when the story reaches its conclusion, we discover that he's he's actually quite open to an answer to that question. Mm. Yes. Well, and, and Nebuchadnezzar, you know, there's, there's a lot of stories about him in the Bible, and his sort of ultimate fate is left unknown. But he's not recorded as one of the worst kings no there's a lot of kings of israel there's, there's a lot of kings of israel who come out looking much worse than him this is this is what i find intriguing about now obviously the the um sort of rhetoric in revelation uh of uh, babylon versus god's people is sort of large-scale imagery mm. i don't think the author of revelation intends us to go into forensic detail and discover that people in Babylon cut their beards in a certain way, so therefore anyone with that beard cut must belong to the end-time evil power or anything. You know, like there'd be levels of, of silliness, of specificity. Um, but it is, it is just remarkable that in this narrative of God's people versus the pagan outsider, mm. it is a common occurrence for the outsider to be shown by the account of Scripture to be more open to God's leading than mm. the, than yeah, God's well, people. Yeah, well, we see it in the Old and New Testament, um, and it starts very, very early with um, you know people acknowledging you know the, the patriarchs God, um, and also the high priest Melchizedek and others like that, and it goes all all the way through to the centurion at the cross um, and the Romans that you know Paul converts. And, the Greeks. So, um, it's yeah, it's 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 a very consistent theme of the Bible that, and you know, the 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 um, Samaritan woman and that Jesus yeah, the Sar well, Syrophoenician woman as well. Yeah. Um, so, um, I mean, the it's question a then is consistent theme in the Bible. The question then is against the broad, broad backdrop of um, scripture, and there are some very troubling ones. So, my favourite one is is Saul going to visit the medium. Um, if you read that story, it is, I think, the fairly obvious intent of the author to show that the medium, this medium who consults spirits 
is considerably more moral than Saul, the king of Israel. And she, in their encounter, she is the goody in the story. I mean, that's the way the story is told. She's kind, yeah. she's gracious, she looks after him even when she discovers who he is and that he's the person who's been killing out her all her kind. And um, and um, she shows deference towards him. And, you know, there's... A, in, you know, Saul doesn't come out looking too well from that encounter. So against the, the broad backdrop of Scripture where God is found in surprising places all the time, uh, mm. where is the mandate to spend a large amount of emotional energy on def- uh, characterizing or finding the, yeah, characterizing which who's in and who's out? Um, well, quite. Um, I don't think there is a mandate for that. And I, I think frankly that it's 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 a flaw driven by by parts of our nature that that have nothing to do with being christ-like um the desire to sort of exclude others um consider oneself as superior um you know as part of an exclusive club yeah the Um, and yeah this is it's worth noting that uh, what you've just said is very good it's a part of human nature it is not in fact a you know a quality found only in conservative Christians or Adventists. Um, we just are wired to, you know. I was my my son got home yesterday from school excited because Chaz Moster had dropped into school, the V8 supercar driver. Oh yes, um, because he went to school at Invermay Primary School, where my kids go to school, mm. and the V8 supercars are down at the moment. And um, he dropped into his old school and and talked to the kids and you know my kids were buzzing and um i said um i looked up a picture of i've been following the supercars very closely but I, you know looked up a picture of him when they got home i said oh is this the guy and i said oh, and then i said oh yeah but he drives for ford um and then I, then i thought hang on what what does it really matter who he drives for but you know from a young age if you're at all belong to any family half remotely interested in v8 supercars um, and you, you know, watch Bathurst and whatever else. You at some age you decide whether you're backing Ford or Holden, and the thing suddenly gains a huge amount of importance. And um, you know, your set of the people who barrack and when um, you know when your football team wins, mm. uh, you say you say to someone else, you say, "We smashed you on the weekend. Uh, we absolutely smashed yeah. you." But but look, you in fact were not playing. I think it's- it's worth pointing out that there are healthy ways to engage in that sort of uh, interaction, you know. Yeah. You can have fun with it. Um, and a lot of those ones, you know, whether it's sport or racing or, or anything like that, the root of the rivalry is a shared interest in the thing, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, wouldn't it be lovely if Christian churches could take that same approach? Oh, Luke, Luke, there's a sermon in that. That's really good. Yeah, because we are all interested... We, the reason why, the only reason the rivalry exists is because we are all interested in God and in, in the Christian the same church, thing. Yeah. In, in Jesus. That's that is so powerful. Look, I need to, I need to think about that a lot more. Um, it certainly can be done in a fun way. I was at a church once on a on a sort of community service trip at school. We went out to Cobar, and on the Sunday we split up and visited the local churches. And I visited the Catholic church. And it was the first time I'd been in a Catholic service. And, uh, you know, you stand and then you sit and you stand. And it was a bit foreign, whatever. We were there just to show solidarity with, um, I think it might have been over Easter as well. So, mm. you know, just to say to the town, we're here to, you know, support the town. Um, but after the service, the, the Catholic priest told a story. He said, now, before everyone goes, I've got a very important t- story to tell. This is uh, this was sent to me during the week, and I think I think it's something that would be useful to us all. And this was a story about uh, Johnny uh, <clears throat> and Kate and Elizabeth and um, a bunch of kids who got... They, they went to a Catholic school, and it's their first day. They're six years old. And um, Sister um, Hannah is taking the, um, the, the little kindergarten class, and Sister Hannah says to them all, all right, well, now... Welcome to school. You know, we're going to get to know each other a lot today. And um, before we start, I'd just be really interested to get to know you better. Can you tell me what you want to be when you grow up? And Johnny said, oh, Johnny wanted to be a policeman. And Sister Anna said, oh, that's that's wonderful. And Kate said um, um, that she wanted to be a doctor. And, and Sister Anna said, yeah, oh, that's lovely. And then, and then little Mary, age six, looked at Sister Hannah and said, uh, Sister Hannah, I'd like to be a prostitute. And Sister Hannah passed out. 
and then she comes to after a few minutes and the kids are all crowding around her they're a bit anxious and as she, as she regains consciousness she says to uh, to little mary 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 what did you say and uh, mary said oh when i grow up i want to be a prostitute and sister hannah said oh thank god i thought you said a protestant <laughs> And then he dismissed everyone, and that was the end of the that was the end of the service. <laughs> uh, yes, I do remember that one. Yeah. Um, well, that's certainly a topic which bears more thinking about. But perhaps we should return yeah. to the story of yeah, 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 Nebuchadnezzar, because it really is a story about Nebuchadnezzar. He is the main character here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have you know are the are the main characters of another story. That yeah. end with them essentially becoming, you know, significant people in the hierarchy. Um, yeah. And they're basically here as a plot device. Yeah. Um, what I'm sorry about Nebuchadnezzar's spiritual. Yes. yes. Uh, well, this is the next passage, verse 16, which I'll read from. Um, the, mm. the root of the word angel is a messenger. And, 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 you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this instance are being God's messengers. They answered the king. They said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Uh, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. He was already furious, in a furious rage, but now he is filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than it was. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics, their hats and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. But because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. Um, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counsellors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fire. The king's very... I, I, I was just observing as, as you were reading. The king is very smart. Mm. As, as soon as he sees the power that is protecting these three men, he immediately pivots yeah. to align himself with them, but also still place himself above them. He commands them to come out. Yeah. Immediately going, yeah, I'm on their side, but also they still work for me. Yeah. Um, and the satraps, administrators, and governors, and the king's councillors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fires had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Mm. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god. He's abandoned fiery furnaces, Luke. Yes. <laughs> He's got plenty of different ways, I presume, yeah. he can uh, punish. Yeah. There is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were promoted in the province of Babylon. <clears throat> um, it's a great story. Uh, one of the things that I find interesting, and that I don't know, I don't, I don't know where this will lead, and I don't know exactly what I think, Luke. But um, when Babylon is used as an image in sermons, particularly in the with reference to Revelation, um, an emphasis seems to be placed on a sort of secret, insidious, almost accidental failing or opposition to God. You know, oh, we know these people who worship on Sunday. We know that they're well-intentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But this is still really important. You know, almost as if someone is sort of just by accident is doing the wrong thing, but it is still somehow massively important. Ac sort of accidental evil. Um, 
not accidental, secret, undercover, insidious. It's going to be inside the church. Sometimes it's not accidental. Sometimes it's it's highly deliberate, but sometimes it's very secret. And we there, there is a sort of conspiratorial element. I knew someone who um, was at a church where a rumor was being circulated by church members that their minister was an undercover Jesuit. Yeah. Um, I couldn't help laughing because of all the problems ministers face, which must be many, the last thing they need, the last thing they need is members, you know, working against them on the grounds that they are a secret undercover Jesuit priest. What, um, what causes such suspicion to arise in people's minds anyway? Yeah. Was, did he display a particular affinity for, for uh, high quality education? <laughs> I don't know, Luke. I don't know. Um, anyway. <clears throat> The sort of picture of Babylon in the in the revelation or the way it is interpreted by a church is that, you know, at the end of time, there's going to be people who are following God and there's going to be people who look like they're following God, but they're uh, mistakenly following Babylon. And then there'll be people who are looking like they're following God, but they're deliberately following Babylon. And that there's going to, it's sort of like a very complicated thing. Whereas the, the morality of the stories in Daniel you know, that actually happened in Babylon seemed to me fairly clear-cut morality. Mm. And, and, and Babylon, well, the rulers of Babylon are as much agents of God and worshippers of God as, as well, as we were just saying earlier, you know, the King Nebuchadnezzar is not by any stretch the, the, the worst king in the Bible. Yeah. Worst kings in the Bible are generally Israelite kings. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, what, what, why is Babylon used as an image for sort of an ultimate end time evil power? Well, I, I wonder if it just comes back to you know the the trauma that the Israelite people suffered in exile, and it, it's it's we you know there's a danger in reading too much into something. Mm. I think you know a lot of a lot of Israelites. I mean, a lot of the Old Testament was perhaps, you know, um, people have studied it far more in depth than me, assert fairly confidently that a lot of the Old Testament was written during exile as a way of preserving the Israelite culture and the religion and the Mm -hmm. faith. Um, And in response to the cultural pressures that they were under from the empire that they were now a part of, you know, Mm -hmm. because... The Persian Empire, the Babylonians and then the Persians later, was very cosmopolitan. Right. It was not a theocracy. So they allowed their subjects to worship whatever god they pleased. Um, right. And then they, of course, had their own. Um, and they considered their gods to be the most powerful. They, If they weren't, why were they the rulers, right? Um, but, you know, it was part of the politics of the, the ideas of, of empire and government that were developing in the world at the time. Um, to kind of be, um, it, it was a wise ruler let their subjects worship their own gods, essentially. Mm. That's not a particularly unusual idea. Locke, you're going to jump in with something. Yeah, I've just, uh, hi everyone, I've just joined this um, recording belatedly and I don't know what's come much prior to the last minute and a half. Um, but I was sitting here trying to think, uh, would... Wouldn't it, would it not, from a, an Old Testament Hebrew perspective, be almost as powerful to write Egypt, where you read Babylon? Mm. Um, there, probably there's no, nothing that matches those or, two. Or Nineveh, you know. Okay, yeah. Yeah. But um, Egypt, there is a difference, is that the Egyptians don't get a lot of positive press anywhere. I mean, Hagar was mm. an Egyptian, but um, and there's isolated figures. But... Uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar and then Darius after him, well, with a few kings in between. Um, you know, there are there are these bright moments in the book of Daniel mm. where where the and and the command to go b- rebuild Jerusalem comes from yeah. the king of of Babylon. So mm. um, it just seems to me that it's it's strange that that's the metaphor that's chosen. One of the what we're doing, Locke, is instead of trying to pin down exactly who Babylon is, we're going back and reading the stories of Daniel, the two stories where an angel appears, and mm. that we've just finished reading um, the the fiery furnace. Now, you said two stories, Kevin. I have a feeling that there's more than that, because I think the second one that I've found is not the second one that you've found, but we'll get oh. to that in a second. Yeah. 
a lot of the stories in Daniel followed this common theme of worship. And angels appear in some of the others. Uh, which was the one you're thinking of, Luke? Well, uh, I found a story in Daniel 10. Uh, okay, mine was before Daniel 10. Mine was Daniel in the lion's den. Um, right. Well, I knew that was your other one because we started with the furnace and we talked before we started recording about it. Yeah. And so, of course, at the end of that, uh, at the end of that, the the angel, uh, sorry, in that story, the angel is not visible in the same way that God's messenger mm, is visible in the no, fiery furnace. But, but in the Daniel in the Daniel ten story, the angel is visible. And if you want to discuss something real weird, we could jump to that one and have a look because I don't think I've ever read this. Has, has you guys read Daniel ten before? I'm sure I, I must have read it um, before. We, we, we definitely would have read parts of it because Daniel ten is is the prophecies concerning Alexander the Great, right? So this is this is one of those um, elements. But I think we miss the um, the the intro to those prophets. We jump straight into the prophecies. I think we very often overlook the intro. This is fascinating to me. Um, I'll, I'll read it um, from Daniel ten, starting at verse one and going through um, go, going through to probably ten or eleven. Um, so. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. Uh, doesn't say why he's mourning. Um, something sad happened. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now, on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with golden ufaz. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Um, and then there's another few verses about how overcome with terror he was and how the angel sort of reassured him. Um, and this is a really fascinating bit. Jumping forward a little bit, um, down to verse 20, the hmm. angel, this is the, the man who was just described, says to Daniel, then he said, do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. And then in chapter 11, the prophecies start. Mm -hmm. Talks about the Alexander the Great conquering all of Persia and then his kingdom being split immediately on his death into the four successor Greek kingdoms, which then fight amongst themselves until the Romans come, etc. Um, so this is, we're talking about angels as messengers. This is a messenger. He's bringing visions of the future, um, visions which we know to be true, and also fascinatingly implying that he's got the, the, the messenger here has some sort of role in the actual events. There's a prince of Persia and a prince of Greece, and the prince of Greece is going to come when he leaves. Hmm. So there's sort of the implication that this is the angel who's protecting Persia, which is just a fascinating thing to consider. And then also the physical description. This is unlike anything, anything else in Daniel, I, I believe, because we were talking a, a little bit before Locke, um, and this may have been before the recording as well, how in the fiery furnace, a man is seen with the Shadrach, mm -hmm. who is like us, who looks like a son of God, mm. but no, no greater description than that. In the Daniel and the lion's den, Daniel just says, God sent an angel to shut the lion's mouths. Mm -hmm. It's not, not recorded. He didn't see anybody. 
just knows that God sent an angel to shut the wine's mouths because he's not dead, um, because their mouths were shut. Um, but this is a very explicit, very weird physical description. Hmm. I don't know if you've looked up what color beryl is, but it doesn't look like, you know, human flesh. <laughs> Yeah, this whole bit, you're, you're right in the way that it entwines these, the, the, I suppose, the angelic or spirit realm with the physical realm. So, so you know, just there in the verses you skipped over, Luke, I'm just noticing verse 13, where the messenger you've described and drawn our, drawn our attention to apologizes for being three weeks late. Daniel's been distressed for these weeks and not eating properly. And in verse 13, this this angel says, um, you know, but for 21 days, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. <coughs> then Michael, one of the archangels, oh, came to help me. Right. And I left him there with the spirit yeah. prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now I'm here to explain what happened to your people. I'm, uh, I'm reading from the NLT, which, which adds the word spirit to all of the princes through here. So it's clearly mm. translating this and interpreting it as uh, a spiritual realm that is informing and impacting and sort of behind the scenes in some ways the the physical realm that's interpretive i'm sure mm. uh, but one of the <clears throat> so this is i think uh, getting down to the sort of crux of where I, uh, the question i i had um um you know one of the things that daniel and revelation are both insistent on as books is that um there is a moral and spiritual dimension to this universe we live in uh and uh, <clears throat> and for Daniel, that would have been less obvious than we suppose. We we hear these, um, read these stories, but Daniel lived for over eighty years. So like once every twenty years, something miraculous happened. Hmm. I mean, there would have been there would have been a lot of just managing the king's affairs in the meanwhile, wouldn't there, as a court official? <laughs> um, yeah, it's not like. And I, you know, he Daniel does get discouraged, and he sent these visions. Um, and uh, what Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego managed to maintain is, uh, you know, a belief in God and in in what is right in the face of a lot of evidence. I mean, this idea that you mentioned, Luke, that the Babylonians thought that their God must be stronger because um, they well they'd conquered everyone. Well, that's kind of a compelling argument. Mm-hmm. It so, was the religious argument of the ancient world, really. Yeah. Well, if, if, if they're the most powerful, that's because our gods are the yeah. most powerful. So, so then you say, well, what's the best application for this in our life? Yeah. Um, and this is, this is the thing where I, I, I'm not sure because uh, some people say um, the best application for this is to, you know, w when you're trying to, at the end of times, you don't want to be part of Babylon. You want to be part of God's people. So um, there's the there's the two women in Revelation referred to in, in the lesson, um, and there's the scarlet one that's representative of Babylon and the evil powers. And we obviously don't want to be that. We want to be part of God's people. Um, okay. Well, what sort of manifestation does that take? Does that mean we, we pour over prophecies and dot the I's and cross the T's and connect the map like those crime scene TV shows with bits of string where you connect the string from all the rest? Well... Um, Daniel seemed to be personally a bit of that sort of person. He he obviously was mm. attuned to those things and responded to them and nourished or challenged by them. Um, is a response to say, um, well, actually, uh, the devil might be lost in the detail. With I mean that quite literally. Um, uh, it is it is pretty clear what God requires in the book of Daniel uh, for us to just keep doing our best to live life with him. I mean, that's all we can do. And, and then you just hope. You just hope that he will do his bit. So you say, God, well, I'd like to live today with you, but I, you know, as best I can, I'll, I'll try and do that. And, you know, exactly how he responds to us is in his court. Um, so, yeah, I, I just don't know what the sort of general vibe of the end-time people is, if it is opposed to Babylon, is, is meant to be. Are we meant to be, like, looking for the undercover Jesuits and the... Mm. Um, you know, the heretics who refuse to eat nut meat. Um, well, I'm quite happy to go out on a limb and come and say that that's, that's probably not what we're supposed to be focusing on. Uh, I think for me, we, what, what I, there, what I'm noticing is there is a bit of a theme, uh, 
consistent approach in Adventism, which is to oversimplify the morality, particularly of the Old Testament mm. biblical interpretation. Right. So every time we go back and we reread these books um, as part of this podcast, primarily, what I see is a much more nuanced picture than the one that I was taught growing up of these stories where this person good, that person bad, hmm. this person win because God. Um, and, you know, none of the important bits of that are necessarily untrue, but it misses out a lot of really important detail about the character of the individuals. And, you know, the ones who follow God were flawed. The ones who didn't follow God also had redeeming qualities. They were not wholly bad. They were not caricatures of evil. Um, they were they were all real people making decisions. You've, you've, you've hit the nail exactly on the head, Luke. We paint a picture that at the end of time, there will be a people that can sort of be, uh, be, be identified by any reasonable mind as God's people, and everyone else will be part of Babylon. And um, th this is exactly the thing. It just feels to me that life, even in Babylon, was just a little bit more complicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, certainly if we go on the stories of Babylon, you know, that we see in Daniel and Esther and others, that is, that is, is very much the case. And I think also in the New Testament, there is plenty of evidence to support the um, to support the idea of not over literalizing the the end times information right um, <clears throat> so you know the, the the remnant is you know is is not a homogenous group I'm, I'm fairly confident to just sort of state that there's there's going to be people in the remnant <clears throat> from all over the place, from all sorts of backgrounds, who've had all sorts of experience. And it's not the Adventist church. It, it is what the Adventist church aspires to be. Hmm. But we don't automatically get that status because we, we aspire to it and we, and we claim to be it. You know, that's, that's, not, um, that's not how it works. And I think God's very clear on that with... With, with with people in the in the Bible and you know Jesus talking to his disciples and the disciples are arguing about you know who's got the the who, who should sit at his left and his right and who's got the greatest status and he says mm. you you're totally off track with that mm. that's not the point um, and one one occasion he, he in response to that he draws a children a child in front of them and says you know if you want to inherit the kingdom of God be like this child. <coughs> uh, I'm not sure how to reconcile that with the images depicted in Revelation um, <laughs> well, in terms of Christian experience. I'd have, I'd have on that, Cam, is that, you know, I was always, I'd always been taught again that, you know, be like this child means unquestioning faith. And now, yes, children do trust their parents, but also anybody who has interacted with a child knows they ask a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, they will trust, but they will also question and they will also, they have a, a tremendous curiosity and they want to learn and they want to grow and they want to do better. Right? Maybe That's what being like a child is. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe this is the, the thing to say. I, I am uncomfortable with... Um, trying to find a, a list of checkbox sort of identifying features of Babylon versus God's people uh, into in, two level highs, too, too much level of specificity. Um, I am quite willing to say that um, I'm quite willing to say that, you know, being part of God's people means looking for him in places where you would not expect to find him. And this is what what Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego do, they're, they're captives in Babylon, but they continue to pray to Jerusalem. And, you know, there's all the evidence of their senses and their life experience tells them that what they believe is not true. But they they persist and they they look for God actively. And maybe the sort of person who ends up in the remnant is the sort of person who is too busy thinking about God to really spend much time wondering if they're in the remnant. Yeah, well, that's exactly the thought that was occurring in my mind as we've been discussing this there seems to me to be a real difference in the way you engage the world between 
going out being constantly wary of everything because the devil hides behind every bush and around every corner and Satan's deceptions are really, really, really cunning and you've got to be, you know, he's going to trap every... That seems to me to be essentially a state of paralyzing fear, really. You can't try anything in that mindset because what if it's a deception? Uh, but look, look, it's a double standard because simultaneously it's saying God's deceptions are tricky and sneaky. We simultaneously maintain, we say, but we haven't been tricked. Yeah, well, that's right. So, um, but th- there's a different approach. And what you're, what you're describing, uh, what you're hypothesizing there and pondering in the context of Daniel and his friends, a different approach is to go around with just as much awareness of the, the bigger picture. This is where I think, you know, the Adventist picture of the great controversy is, is a helpful idea in many ways because it reminds us that there is more two things but you can go around instead of being so worried that satan is hiding behind every single bush what if you go around with the intentional quest for identifying um movements of god's spirit because if the new testament tells us anything it says god's spirit moves around every corner and behind every bush and and you can turn up at a roman centurion's house and you can find that what you thought was totally off limits god's spirit's already there and, you know, they end up uttering in the Acts. Well, if God's already sent his spirit here, who are we to withhold baptism? And and I guess what I'm saying is that it seems to me both a lot, and, and maybe this comes down to personalities, it seems to me a lot more attractive to engage with the world in that second mindset. But I admit it also seems to carry some risk because you may be deceived. Um, and... and Despite that risk, I still think, I still see it as being the life we are called to live. The, and if, if we are deceived, then I guess yeah, what I'm deception... trying to say is there's an element of self-sacrificial... Yeah. Like, the decep- yeah. We're called, we're called to do our best to be agents of God's kingdom. And if that means losing our lives, then we do. And that is often described and pictured very much in sort of a tangible, you know, physical life-death thing. Um, is uh, I'm not putting good words to this, but is going around being so 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 concerned about the potential of being um, well, it uh, what sucked I, in. What I'm by, reminded of, Locke, is nothing so much as the parable of the talents. Right. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I think that's a really clear narrative illustration of what the concept that you're talking about, and I, I, I feel I feel like that the the mistake of the third servant in mm. is the great mistake of our you know our western society and culture yeah fear of 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 failure the fear yeah. um of taking a risk to achieve something or do something because it might go wrong mm. and that is at the root so much of our society and and, and our cultural priorities <clears throat> around preserving safety Mm. Um, and there doesn't seem to be an understanding that nothing is without risk. Yeah. And you, you can't make any meaningful change without taking some risks. You can't shift the dial unless you put something out there to, to, to move it. Um, you cannot achieve anything without risk. There is no solution where you have your cake and eat it too. You remain in perfect protection and safety and comfort and security, and you also achieve X, Y, and Z. Mm, yeah. it, it, that's not <clears throat> how reality works. And, you know, God has not called us to be... God has called us to be risk-takers. If, if there's something Christians should be good at, it is taking risks. Hmm. <clears throat> now, calculated risks, maybe. Mitigated risks, but taking risks. Hmm. Shaq and Abednego... Yeah. took a risk, a very, very, you know, you could argue that, that one wasn't mitigated or calculated in any way. That, you know, they could have just bowed down and gone, well, we're pretending at the moment and we're actually worshipping God. <laughs> I know. Which would have been the great temptation. Just do, do, make do it for appearances sake, keep your position safe, keep your lives safe and, and worship God in the comfort and security of your own heart. Yeah. The, the Bible makes yeah. it clear that that's not how we're supposed to do it. So, well, you know, that's what I, I would say very strong, you know, and I think that's the real the real great temptation is surrounded by and buffeted with every day is the one that says, 
Oh, be smart, be safe, don't do anything stupid, don't do anything dangerous, don't try, just like do what you can, but only without risk. Mm. There is actually no such thing as without risk. And sometimes the most risky thing to do is not what feels risky, but actually doing nothing, which feels safe, but comes with its own set of risks. And those are going to be really severe in their consequences. Well, this is the exact uh, question that we've been sort of dancing around the edges of. Um, at the end time, where this revelation paints this fairly sharp picture between God's people, agents of good and agents of evil. And, you're, and we're meant to be living in end times. And as I look at the world, the world seems to be pretty complicated. Not many people I know are wholly good and not many people are wholly bad. Um, which is the worst risk to run? Accidentally um, loving and caring and including in your community someone that you shouldn't or um, accidentally, accidentally love people, Cam. Yeah, well, or accidentally excluding people that you should have included. That you should have included. Yeah, look, mm. I think I think it's a fairly self-evident uh, answer to that, and and maybe that's on the, the the point on which we should wrap things up. Yeah, yeah, I have some I have some thoughts, but they relate to Satan's deceptions, and I've just noticed that's our topic for the next episode, so they can wait. Ah, luck, you'll have to keep them. Um, I I would hope. Uh, I'm not very good at this myself, maybe, but I, I feel that our church would be the best it could be if it was the sort of church that accidentally was too inclusive or, or loved too many people or mm. looked for good in too many places um, rather than accidentally, um, you know, looking for Babylon behind every bush. I'm sure our listeners will have an opinion on that um, and uh, they can email that opinion to us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com and they can also uh, tune in next week. Um, this lesson series is becoming fairly heavy going. Uh, partly, uh, it, it's, I think you said, look, there's a personality element. I, I don't find these topics nourish me spiritually. Um, so we will try and loosely follow the lesson, but uh, you will have to excuse us if occasionally we go on excursions. And uh, uh, sometimes that's uh, our effort to try, to try and find God. And uh, we hope that... Uh, this community we're part of um, helps you do the same. So please join us again next week.